Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Hello to our Grace Life friends. We have another Grace story for you today in our special series called Grace Stories. And this series is dedicated to talking to people about how God's grace has made a difference in their lives. Sometimes it's been a major turning point, or sometimes it's just been an enlightening realization, but it has made a difference. And uh, maybe you need a touch from God today, and maybe it comes uh, from his love and in the form of uh, a message of grace towards you. And we'll find out how that touched uh, someone today that we're talking to. So uh, if you're driving, keep your eye on the road. If you're in your living room, put your feet up and uh, turn the TV off and and enjoy this story. Now, the story is from someone I met when I was teaching um, at a Bible Institute. And um, this is, that's not where he started and where the story starts at all. But um, we're going to be talking um, to Brian Kennard. And I say your last name correctly, Brian? Uh, close. It's actually Connard, but Connard is Connard. Okay. It's a matter of emphasis. That's right. <laughs> Connard. Oh, well, Brian, uh, welcome to the podcast, and we're looking forward to hearing from you. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. Um, glad for the privilege to be able to share. Yeah, and uh, where, where, where are you sharing from right now? I'm in uh, Anderson, South Carolina. Anderson, South Carolina, and is, is that your home state? It is. I was uh, born here in Anderson and uh, was raised in uh, Greenville, just a neighboring uh, city. So, yeah, this is where I was born and raised. Okay. Is that called the low country? It is. Well, yeah, actually, I was talking with a guy the other night, and he was referring, he was saying he was pastoring in the low country. So I thought we were the low country, but there must be a lower low country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know there's a lot of good food down there. So Oh, incredible. Well, when I when I met you, you were uh, working for um, what was called New Tribes Bible Institute, mm -hmm. and uh, you shared some of your story back. And that was a few years ago. You shared some of your story, and I was just fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, there are other people ought to hear that story. Um, so I don't know where you want to begin, but uh, I imagine we we need a little background on your uh, maybe your family or your uh, your religious background at least, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So religious background and family uh, are connected, uh, have no religious background, at least in the sense of formal religion. Um, rarely did I go to church. Actually, I can only remember uh, in my early teens wanting to go to a church uh, just a little south of where our trailer park was located, only because uh, I saw some young girls going to the church there and I thought, Hey mom, you know, I'd love to go to that church down there. So she let me go. <laughs> um, but I, I think I visited maybe a week or two. Um, and then the youth pastor, he, he caught on to me quite, quite, quite quickly. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, not really any, um, exposure to church except for the, I was conscious of churches being around. Uh, if anybody's ever visited South Carolina or most Southern states, they're, our churches on every corner of the street. Yeah. At least it feels that way. Your parents uh, wife, uh, didn't go to church there or any place. You know, my dad, uh, I, and I'll share a little more about this as the story goes on. I didn't meet my dad until I was in my early teens between mm. 11 to 13. I can't remember exactly when, 
but my grandmother tells me that she used to take him to a church in North Carolina. Um, but you know, since the, the time that my mom and dad started having kids, um, I've never seen my mom go to church, uh, nor my dad. So, so yeah, I didn't get any exposure to church, uh, grew up in what we would call here, the ghetto, uh, in Greenville. Um, it was more of the rougher part of town. And honestly, for me, that was just normal life, uh, family, um, was always surrounded by communities where drugs were being sold or used, uh, consistent violence. The schools that I went to as well would be, uh, lower income areas and things like that. My dad though, obviously wasn't present at the time. And, uh, my mom has messed with drugs here and there for the most part, but I don't remember growing up and her doing drugs. Um, it wasn't until later on with my, when my dad came into the family, but I'd started, um, so I have three siblings, two older sisters that are twins and a younger brother, and they are, uh, personality wise, a little different, uh, mm-hmm. than I am and was, uh, they're a little more introverted and often they would just stay at home. So life was already insecure, challenging mom, trying to do everything she could to keep food on the table. I mean, often I remember times, you know, extreme stories that many people around the world experience, but less often do they experience it here in the U S where my mom's looking for dinner and she just grabs butter out of the refrigerator, you know, to feed us with it and trying wow. to pull things together. Thankfully though, in the South, there are a lot of uh, places where you can go and they'll give you, you know, boxes of canned foods and, and stuff like that. But it was insane. And finally I, I, I grew, grew increasingly frustrated with that reality. And I started moving towards outlets that I perceived to be options for gaining income. Um, and I noticed that there were drug dealers around me, you know, even though we lived in a trailer park or times uh, apartment complex, uh, even though everything around us was, you know, in terrible condition, uh, a lot of my friends still drove 20, you know, they had cars with 22 inch rams on it. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, there's gotta be money around here somewhere. Um, so I started in the direction of trying to figure out, okay, how do I get into this crowd? And that led me down the direction of starting to do some drugs, but I really didn't mess with it as much. I was just mainly smaller things like getting in trouble at school. And my mom was really trying to keep me in school. I was, you know, on truancy in three different counties. I'd get in trouble at one school. My mom would do the best she could to salvage that situation. And often that was moving. Um, so what she were you, what were you doing there. to get in trouble at that young <laughs> age? At that age, it was primarily uh, violence or just not going to school. Okay. So, um, you know, just or basic um, um, rebellion. I mean, it's not really basic. It was terrible, but I just wouldn't do what the teacher would ask me to do. Um, and that was some of the earlier steps. Uh, rebellion, authority. I didn't really see them as an authority. Um, I didn't have good authority figures in my life as well. So I thought I could do whatever I wanted. And if the teacher would ask me to do something, I just wouldn't do it. You know, I just wouldn't do the assignment. And then that led to skipping school. Mm. And my mom tried to address that. And then it led to um, more uh, outbursts of anger, which was earlier on just like throwing papers off the desk to getting in fights and hallways and stuff like that. Um, but as time moved on, uh, I remember vividly a conversation with my mom. She drove this really nice old uh monte carlo it was hilarious though she loved it she thought it was the greatest car in the world but it, you know it had a really nice motor in it monte it went carlo, fast yeah. yeah but it had you know it was uh didn't even have a paint job on it <laughs> it was it was rough looking uh on the exterior but she she loved it we one night we pulled up to a convenience store and while at the convenience store i remember my mom leaving us in the car with the car running uh and she's talking on a payphone that 
even as young as I am, that still dates me a tiny bit. You know, she's talking on a payphone, yeah. and I remember it being a long extended conversation. She would yell at times or she'd be quiet at times. And then she comes back to the car and she starts to drive off. And my mom is generally talkative. Uh, she was quiet. We start posing certain questions. And finally, she says, there's someone coming home. And we're like, okay. Mm. What does that mean? And then she took us through a, a conversation that, in essence, the conversation she had on the payphone was with my dad, and he was going to be coming home. So that sent me through all these stages of, you know, I'm just starting to move into a time in my life where I'm making bad choices. Um, and then he comes home or comes back into the family, and I am wrestling with the insecurity of wanting a dad around, yet not wanting him around because... I'm just starting in my early teens. And had you, you know, ever he, met him just, before or seen him before? I met him one time. Um, well, my mom says that I met him when I was younger, maybe three, four years old. I just don't have any. I don't remember actually meeting him, so but really, I do remember probably around eight or nine years old. Um, my mom always maintained contact with him because he would pay child support. Um, and we were out of Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. And I remember her, my mom pointing out and saying it was my dad. But were they divorced? That, never divorced, actually. Never divorced? Okay. Well, they are divorced now. Mm-hmm. Just about 11 years ago, I believe, they, they got a divorce. But they were always, not always, if they weren't together, then they were separated, but in different relationships, but never legally uh, divorced. So they're always in other relationships, but yet still married. Um, so when he comes back into the family, he moves in uh, to the place that we're already staying at. Uh, and initially it was great. Um, you know, he having a dad in the home, uh, my younger brother was young enough that I felt like I was just with all ladies, you know, mom and twin sisters, my older twin sisters. Mm-hmm. So dad coming in, there's a sense of confidence that's developing. And for me as a young boy, I'm thinking, I want to do everything my dad's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it wasn't long after that, that his friend group kind of transitioned into now our world. Uh, and that was more of a, uh, extreme alcoholism and drugs and things like that. So right away, it, I mean, it's hard to remember the timeline. It's amazing. Even when I talk to my wife sometimes about some of the details, it all starts to overlay, like not what yeah. age was I exactly, what, how many months or years did it take? But it it wasn't long. And then um, with him being in the home that I started doing, he would have friends over and they would be, you know, small, smaller stuff relative to the things that I did, smoking marijuana and stuff like that. So my older sister and I started stealing my dad's marijuana. (laughs) He would get high and fall asleep or something like that. And we'd steal his stuff. And my sister came up with this bright idea. She thought it was a bright idea. She was like, man, this is great. It works. I guess it was bright in the the most weird sense. But she was like, let's go talk to our dad. And let's say, hey, look, we've been stealing your drugs. I was like, that's not a good way to start the conversation. Uh, But she was like, no, stick with me. We're going to tell him we're stealing your drugs. However, we're already doing drugs outside the home. And we had started doing drugs with our friends. Mm -hmm. So she was like, let's propose if we do the drugs with you, dad, then we're not doing drugs out on the streets and we're not going to get any bad stuff. Interesting. (laughs) And I'm thinking this is never going to work. Sure enough, my sister puts it all together. We go sit down. She's three years older than I am. And my dad's thinking that's a great idea. And that's exactly what we started doing. He thought in whatever way he thought he was being a good dad thinking, Oh yeah, well, we'll just keep it in the house. I yeah. know where the drugs came from, et cetera. But it, it wasn't, wasn't much of a choice. That. Really. That was offered him. It was going to be drugs one way or the other. That's exactly right. We're like, hey, we're going to keep, we're stealing your drugs. We figured he would get upset. Um, but he actually took it in the direction of, oh, okay. And so, yeah, we were doing drugs at home at that point, 
but I started to spend time with his friends as a, as a younger guy, I was, um, um, I kind of, is weird, like at 14, 15 years old, I was the same height at that time that I still am now. Hmm. Um, so I was a bigger kid in middle school, but yet one of the smaller kids when you get into high school, college age, uh, or average size around five eleven. Um, so I, I, I looked older. I was that awkward kid that had the mustache when you're like 13, 14 <laughs> years old, you think it's great, but no one else does. Um, so I start hanging out with older people and while I'm spending time with these older people, I start doing drugs, more drugs with them. But then I realized, cause remember I still was wrestling with that, that search of, even though my dad was there, we were still poor because he spent all of his money on drugs. Um, I kept wrestling with everyone else who has money. How do I get into this? But then I started realizing that um, as I was getting a little bigger, that if I have enough brute force and enough wit that I can sell drugs and be kind of an enforcer. So I started doing that where I would um, kind of, I'd be the carry man uh, for certain drugs uh, with older guys. They would have a certain amount that they would, we called it fronting. They would kind of give you an advance. I would sell those drugs and then I would give a return uh, to the drug dealer and make my own profit, keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was a big timer making money. Uh, but then it spiraled quite quickly. My dad left again. Um, I'm getting older at this point. And at about 15, 16 years old, uh, I'm selling a ton more drugs at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm already at this point um, hearing and dabbling in the realm of methamphetamine. But at the most, at that point, I was only using uh, and doing marijuana and cocaine, but I was selling crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the area I was in, it was the most lucrative route. Um but as I got closer to 17, um, around 17 to 19 is when things went south. I was arrested, I think it was a week before I turned 17. I was going to Carolina High School uh, here in, uh, in, in Greenville, South Carolina. And I was already in massive amounts of trouble. I mean, I was so bad at school. It had developed terribly. And my mom was doing everything she could to keep me out of juvenile detention center. I was in truants in three different counties. I was, I was 17 in the eighth grade. My goodness. 17. And then finally my principal came to me and said, dude, you can't be 17 in the eighth grade. So they skipped me up to high school um, because I just wasn't going to school. Um, And it it was just bad. So already they're just trying to keep me to the point I'm 17. And when I'm 17, then I can make that adult choice to stop going to school. Uh, But I got arrested even before that point um, with, um, um, illegal use and possession of a firearm and stuff like that. And then from that point on, I stopped going to high school and it just, it turned into craziness from age 17 till 19. So only two years. And it just, it flew by, it felt like a very long time. And I ended up having uh, I was arrested five times during that times. Uh, and the fifth time I was arrested when I was 19, um, I had an, accu- I had accumulated a uh, 19 felonies that I'd been arrested for 19 felonies, 19 felonies. I remember sitting in jail and I had as many felonies, uh, as of my age at that point, were they all for possession or for sale or no. So interesting enough, it actually, I I went through this stage towards the end between, you know, around 18 at the end of 17, 18 years old for about a year, uh, doing methamphetamine. And that was really, um, a crazy world because I moved into this where I was just a dealer to, stealing and I mean, we were working for odd guys over here in small towns I actually left big greenville the city came to where my grandmother lived in an area called belton just outside of anderson here and it's a small mm-hmm. country mill hill area um thinking i would get out of trouble 
but there was a significant amount of methamphetamine there. And these guys were stealing vehicles and uh, chopping the vehicles. You know, they would strip it down to nothing and then sell it on a car lot. And so I'd started doing that, stealing all these vehicles and doing all kinds of stuff. So in essence, my, my charges ended up being more, um, robbery, burglary and things like that. I see. Um, yeah. So in the end, I was only convicted of uh, eight felonies. I say only. That was a lot. Was <laughs> only felony. eight felonies. Not many people uh, consider that. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> uh, but when I was 19, though, I'm sitting in jail. Um, and while sitting in jail, uh, I'm sobering up. So I kept running. I would. I was in this weird stage where I'd actually never been to prison. I'd been arrested four times and I would always get a bond. So a bail bondsman that would, in essence, the bail bondsman requires a certain amount of the total uh, that the judge has given you. So if they give me, you know, 10,000, I only had to pay five to 10% of that. And then I would report to him weekly. Well, I always had enough cash from selling drugs that I could just pay my way out. And I, as long as I wasn't arrested for drugs, they wouldn't confiscate the money, even though they're obviously wondering where did I get all the cash from? Yeah. So I'd get out on bond and I would skip court and I'd get arrested again. They would look at it and say, Oh, Mr. Connor, it looks like we have a warrant out for your arrest. And then they slapped the new thing on it. Arrest me again. Give me a bond. I would get out. So I went through that cycle and this time, the fifth time, we had broken into um, a police officer's house and stole a bunch of guns. Oh, my uh, goodness. And that was one. They gave me a high bond at that point. However, now I'm sitting in jail with the reality of this one was pretty big, breaking into the police officer's house. She was quite frustrated. Um, it was a lady. Um, and I'm waiting to go to court. I couldn't meet the bond at that time. And honestly, the best thing happened. I'm finally, I'm settling down and I can't move. Uh, so I at that time, just start thinking, man, is this it? Is this reality? Um, my great, or my, not my great granddad, my, my granddad, my dad's dad actually did a double life in federal penitentiary. He robbed four banks. Uh, actually, while, when my dad came back for that early longer time, when I was around the age of 12 to 13, um, just after that, when I was 14, the FBI came to her house and <laughs> they're mm-hmm. like, Hey, this because he got out at 68 years old after doing, I don't know how many years in federal penitentiary and robbed another bank and went yeah. back to prison and ended up getting a double life. So a history of all these choices. I'm finally sitting there thinking, man, this is life uh, to use a word that I use. Uh, it was, I mean, it just describes it well. I said, this sucks. This is terrible. This is not what I want to continue to do. However, I felt absolutely hopeless. I felt like there was, this is the only option. I got to make do with what's on the table. Um, and it didn't look so bright. And how old are you exact, exactly? Oh, at this point? I was 19 at that point. Okay. 19 years old. And it was after a few months of being in jail uh, that I started getting used to the jail culture uh, and generally respect religious people. Uh, this guy came in and shared the gospel, which was an odd moment because there was an older guy in the cell with us. And we kind of had this weird relationship with our, well, we jokingly used the word sin, our criminal activity, our sins. And we would say pretty much whatever you have kind of goes, we're not judging other people's criminal activity, but there are certain ones that were just like, these were no-nos like molestation or whatever that people would come in with. And we didn't respect those. And generally mm-hmm. we were mean to people like that. Well, there was this one guy who had one of those charges and I'd been stealing all of his stuff to get a rise out of him and get him to, to respond. And then I could, you know, literally, you know, engage in violence with him and get him kicked out of the cell. Well, it was that guy's son who comes to see his dad, but he had years beforehand gotten saved, heard the gospel in that same cell we were sitting in Wow! and wanted to come down and share truth, but also see his dad. 
Wow. He comes in and we all stop playing cards. Uh, I mean, I just stolen this guy's, we, it's called canteen. Uh, every, I can't remember now if it's every, if it was every week or every month, we used to get a bunch of food. You could, if you have money, you could buy honey buns and all those things <laughs> that you're yeah. going to eat on and, and get fat off of, you know, <laughs> um, I'd stolen this whole bag of stuff It's sitting on my bed while he comes in and he shares the gospel with us. He just really, it was the first time someone had actually ever that I could remember. I mean, I saw church buses come by and pick people up in my neighborhood, pick kids up, but no one, as far as I can remember, had ever sat down with me and said, Hey, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he did for you? And interesting enough, at this point, I'm already smoking the Bible. The Gideons would come in and they would bring us those little Gideon Bibles. Yeah. Like, give me those Gideon Bibles. You know, I'd hold my shirt out quite literally and they'd drop Gideon Bibles and I'd say, no, no, you know, I have some of my friends. I'll give them to them as well. And they're so happy. They'd be dropping in there, but we use it as rolling paper for our marijuana and cigarettes. (laughs) So they're thinking we're reading them, but we're not reading them. We were totally smoking them. Um, Did you start with uh, Genesis or Leviticus? I didn't. Well, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, I know, right. It's a bad joke. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's funny though. Actually, (laughs) I read, I smoked the whole book of Proverbs right <laughs> up to the point. I just, because if, I'm you know, not, again, Brian, that's something that not many people can say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it was insane. However, at this point I'm still, I'm wrestling with what I'm hearing. And I remember being frustrated, not frustrated because of the way he presented himself. He did a, he was very respectful, really clear communicator. I just had thought to myself I, and just to use, I know this word isn't the most appropriate word, but I literally just said, that's some Harry Potter crap. And I was like, you want to tell me hmm. that someone who lived 2000 years ago can have an impact on my life today? This is crazy. I'm missing the resurrection at this point, obviously. However, what does this dead man and his dying on the cross have any relevance to my life and my choices now? But I couldn't get past the fact that the term I used was, it was beautiful, what he had described. It was attractive. But I just found myself more frustrated because I felt like that's for those people. And I'm these, I'm a part of this group over here. Uh, and we're kind of, you know, you the, felt too, the, too sinful, too rejected. Uh, or it was hard to believe that somebody. It, it was hard to believe. It was more the hard to believe, like who would do something like that? Okay. You know, as, and, and on that same reality, about a month and a half, two months later, the summer comes along and everyone starts moving around. They separated us by red bands and yellow bands. There's yellow bands for people who got arrested for, I don't know, they were um, drinking and driving or indecent exposure or whatever it may be. And they're only going to be in jail for a few nights. The red bands were people who were in there for murder or like what I was in there for with all these um, burglary accounts and robberies and stuff like that. But as the, the, the population grows, they have to kind of blend us. They move me into a different cell and another guy comes down the hallway. And he shares the gospel. And this is when I'm just finishing Proverbs. I didn't even know how to pronounce Proverbs. I just finished smoking <laughs> or reading. Finished smoking. Finished smoking. Okay. <laughs> Good. Literally, we're just finishing up and we hear the guy coming down the hallway. He'd stop in the set. We had, the hallway had three sales. There was a really big one at the start of the hallway, a medium-sized one, and then a, the third one was a quite uh, a much smaller one with the lesser population. So he'd stop at the first one and we could hear him. He made it to the second one, and he comes to us. And he starts sharing. And I remember at this point, I'm still, you know, attracted to that conversation, you know, a month or a month and a half beforehand, but still frustrated. And he starts sharing things and I can't even remember what he was sharing, but I remember becoming increasingly frustrated, a little like burning inside, angry at this guy. And a no-no in jail for the most part is being disrespectful to the religious people. It doesn't matter if he's an imam or if he's a pastor, generally we listen. And I just started arguing with them. I felt like what I was hearing, what I thought I was hearing is I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that's going to hell because 
of who I am. I grew up in a poor family. Uh, I grew up in the ghetto and look at these choices here. So I'm going to hell and he gets to go to heaven because he has his button up shirt and he's on the other side of the bars. I was seeing mm-hmm. it as you're on this side of the bars. I'm on this side of the bars. Um, and that was it. And he did a really, really good job at stopping me and just chose to focus in. There was 20 of us in the cell there. And he just said, no, nah, you missed it. He says, that's, that's not why I'm going to heaven. That's not why you're going to hell. There's a crucial figure that you've already heard of. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he gave his life on Calvary for you. And the difference is, is I've accepted his sacrifice and you reject it. So you're right. I am going to heaven and you're going to hell as far as I understand. But it isn't because I have a button up shirt and I'm on this side of the bars and you're on that side of the bars. It's because God has sufficiently provided what we need for our sin problem. And I've accepted that and you haven't. And I remember thinking like, what? Okay. So at that point I stopped and I listened and he went on to talk about, I didn't know at that point, Romans. So a famous passage that we're familiar with in Romans chapter five, verse six, for yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Well, a very similar phraseology comes up again in chapter eight, but he, he adds a key term. He says, for yet while we were enemies. And I remember that that key term really stood out to me. And I thought, enemies, who in the world dies for their enemies? I'm running through faces quite literally in my mind of enemies. I had plenty of enemies. That's why I was in jail. Yeah. Um, I had developed a ton of enemies. Matter of fact, I was very upset with the people who got arrested with me. They had written statements against me saying that I did the crimes. They told on me. And it's kind of like the yeah. unpardonable sin, you know, yeah. within the ghetto. You don't tell on other people. So I had all this thing in my mind. I just thought, who would die for their enemy? And I remember just being, I mean, this, this, this news was already attractive to me a month, month and a half earlier. Now he's telling me that, hold on, like this, this, this individual has stepped into my mess and he was willing to lay down his life while I was still an enemy. I wasn't like a friend who gave his life for a friend. Mm-hmm. I, I'm an active enemy. And yet he, through his shed blood, through Calvary, um, I, I can have friendship with God. I can be brought back into a, a relationship with God. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, this is an incredible. Well, he left. And later on that light night while I was laying in the bed, I just was like, I don't even, I felt awkward. I was like sweating. Cause it was this weird moment of trying to think wow. through what in the world's going on. And I was like, I've heard a prayer and stuff. I didn't know what I needed to do. I mean, I know now theologically, the moment I agreed with God that his son and his sacrifice was exactly what God provided for me. And I accepted that eternity had changed for me. Mm-hmm. I believe the moment that I agreed wow. with him, everything had changed for me. But then while laying in bed there, I just said, I didn't know who I was talking to. I was like, all right, if this is real, I want to get to know this Jesus guy. And I woke up the next morning and there was a Jehovah Witness actually in the cell with us <laughs> who hated me. I found out at that point he hated me because I was smoking the Bible. So even though he was a criminal, he was not for smoking the Bible. For me, I had no religious connection. I was like, this is good rolling paper. I'm just smoking this. And he just yeah. thought it was so offensive. <laughs> uh, and I told him, I was like, I like slid over beside him and said, hey, is there a way that I can get to know this Jesus guy that that, that guy who shared with us yesterday had talked about? And he literally looked over at me and he says, yeah, there's a perfect way to get to know that Jesus guy. Stop smoking the Bible and read the Bible. <laughs> That's a good now, yeah, Zach, I was kind of I was kind of caught off at first because one of the reasons why I would, we would smoke the Gideon Bible is they were written in, uh, in archaic language. And especially for someone with a low education level, the King James was just an absolute impossibility. I would try to read it and just could not get it. Well, a guy had gotten out of jail earlier that year and gave me a new living translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started reading it and honestly, I, I would get up every morning. I was so attracted to this Jesus. I would re- I read the whole new Testament in two weeks. Mm. 
I started with John, not even sure why I started with John, read through the whole New Testament two weeks. I would have my NLT and then my King James Gideon, and I would smoke with my Gideon one <laughs> while reading my NLT. And I did that just, just reading and reading and reading. And honestly, I, I, spent, I spent another 12 months in jail at that point. And I, I spent that time there, there as a believer, and I would just read nonstop. I mean, I had nothing else to do but do push-ups and, and read. And thankfully, there were some, some guys in there who had a Christian background who would help me understand some of those things. They'd made certain bad choices and were in jail. Um, they didn't stay long. They had smaller offenses. Uh, but I just, I mean, there were truths that were coming alive to me. I remember I would uh, lie all the time. Obviously, I didn't want to say that I committed the criminal act that I committed. And I would go speak to my public defender that the state had provided for me because I didn't have the money to pay for a, a lawyer. And, uh, and, I, and I finally went to her. I was reading through John. And I'm hearing like freedom will set me free. Right. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, there's true freedom and honesty, truth. I'm just going to tell the truth. I'd still felt like at a conviction level, I couldn't tell on the other guys, but I could at least tell on myself. So I went to my public defender and just said, listen, I've been, I'm sorry. I've been lying to you. She's looking over at the table. Like, are you kidding me? That's, that's an insane statement. Uh, I was like, I just have been lying. I, uh, I committed these things here. So I admitted to some specific, uh, things. And she, she even asked me like, what's the turning point? I said, I know you're, cause I, I I'd lived in the jail world, uh, for a while there now. And I knew she was going to chalk it up to religion. And I was like, whatever. Uh, and there's a, there's this common thing called jailhouse religion yeah, and it was developed because exactly people coming, going to jail, getting out yeah. and they're, they, they live, talk about the Bible and Jesus while in jail, but no longer do it when they get out. And I know it had developed a negative perception of people's uh, actual conversion experiences in, in, in jail. Um, so I just said, you know, I, I've come to know Jesus. And as I'm reading the Bible, I'm realizing for me to continue to lie to you isn't a good thing. And she well, was she like, could, okay. she could argue with your jailhouse conversion. But when you tell the truth about something that crucial, that's that's a different argument. That's exactly right. And that was massive because when I went to so my first time going before the judge, they offered me 15 years for just two of my uh, um, offenses. And I was floored. And I said, no, <laughs> obviously. And then I went back six months later, they offered me 10 years and it kept going down. Finally, I was signing a, um, um, a plea bargain with uh, the solicitor for five years. Um, but there was this during this time, I'd heard of a, excuse me, a Christian discipleship program in uh, the Anderson area called the Haven of Rest Ministry. Mm-hmm. And I had, I just felt like I was learning to walk with the Lord in jail and I was just growing to love the scriptures and my mind was being changed or certain things. No one was telling me, Brian, stop cursing. Mm-hmm. I would read through Ephesians and realizing like my speech is not giving grace to the hearer. So I started realizing, well, maybe I shouldn't talk like this. Uh, violence. I'm reading through John, right? Jesus is trying to go to Jerusalem with his disciples. And on his way, he sends James and John ahead of him. They go in, they come back. They're told, no, they're remembering Elijah before the prophets of Baal. Let's call down fire from heaven. And Jesus gives his famous words. The son of man did not come into the world to take life, but to give life. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't be harming people around me. No one's telling me not to do these things. I'm just reading the scriptures and understanding, okay, maybe I should be making these adjustments. Well, when I go before the judge, me being honest, as I'm taking God at his word and saying, you know what, I did these things to my public defender. She shares that same information with the solicitor. She's like, man, this guy has radically changed for whatever reason. um, And he's being honest. So she was giving me kind of a a positive review. 
But I told her and the solicitor, I said, listen, I know the Christian Christianity stuff maybe isn't what you guys want to hear, but I've come to Jesus. I believe the word of God. I believe that the only way to God is through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. I want to walk with him and I want to do that with him outside of jail, but I need help. And I feel like if you send me home to my family, even if I go to prison, so I'm already signing five years in prison. I'm going to do five more years. Then I'm going to get out. I said, I still need help when I get out of prison. They were like, well, you aren't obligated to even have parole or anything like that. I said, but I want you to tack on to the end of this. I'm going to say yes, only if you sentence me to this Christian discipleship program. So the solicitor's like, okay, whatever. Uh, We can do that, but it's adding to your time. And he presents that before the judge, but it's interesting. Right before, uh, so they take me downstairs. I come up, and at this point is when I'm going to go up, and he's going to finalize my sentence. Uh, A guy shows up. They come and get me out of the cell, actually. Um, and I'm thinking it's me going back before the judge, but it's actually the director of the Haven of Rest Ministry he was coming there. in. Yeah, he had went to the jail to meet with me. He had a letter sitting on his desk for almost a year hmm. that I'd spent apologizing because he visited me earlier on and he told me that I wasn't saved. <laughs> he was true that I wasn't saved at all. He was just talking to me and he was just like, I don't think you understand the gospel. I'm not sure this is the best program for you. And he got up and left and I was totally discouraged. So I sent him a message back and was like, Hey, thanks for being honest. You're right. I didn't know who Jesus was. I just was totally hoping to get out of jail. And then I was going to steal your four wheeler and take off or something. You know, I literally go to the details. My intentions were not good at that point. So I just was saying, Hey, um, I would love to come to your program after I get done with prison, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. And then in essence was just saying, thank you. Well, he was like, I wonder if that guy's still in jail and came and visited. And when he went to the detention center where I was located, they said, Oh, he's actually at court. So then he goes to court, the judge I'm going before, and this is kind of a tight knit community here as well with the believers. The judge is a Christian and he knows this guy. So I go back up. The judge hears that I'm trying to add to my sentence with this Christian program. He gets up and makes an appeal and says, man, we would love to salvage this guy. And even though my bad choices were evidently bad, I'd never been convicted of a crime. So the I was still in this weird guilty until innocent stage. Uh, I'd been, I'd never actually been before a judge and they hadn't sentenced me to prison. When they do that, there's a bare minimum they have to meet. It's really hard to salvage a Mm. case. So since I had never been to prison for those charges, just detention center, uh, incarceration, uh, the judge suspended my five-year sentence, gave me 12 years suspended to five years probation. So he upped the sentence to, if I violate probation, then I do 12 years in prison instead of five. And he sent it to me to the Haven of Rest Ministry. Hmm. So it was crazy. I'm there thinking, how in the world? I literally, the judge, when he does that, and when he says 12 years, I almost passed out at first. I was like, what? Because these are only for two of my charges. I still have all yeah. the other ones to go to court yeah. for. Uh, but then he sent this to me to the Haven of Rest. And literally two days later, I went to the Haven. And it was massive because I'd been reading the scriptures. And there were things that I was, I was understanding and really loving. But I still needed massive help. There were basic things that I... And this is where discipleship became important. I needed the body. I didn't know how to manage money. I didn't know how to manage time. Uh, There were still issues with anger that I was still wrestling through and security. I needed men to come alongside and share life with me and and, and really help me understand how to apply some deeper principles. And I went to this program and at this program, it was incredible. I met a lot of those men who did that. I went through the whole program. Uh, I got off of uh, uh, probation early, actually. So I was on intensive probation. And I wanted to go to Bible college, but I wanted to do missions. While I was at the training, there was a retired missionary from New Tribes of Mission, or now Ethnos 360. Mm-hmm. And he gave me my first exposure to unreached people groups. And I was a young guy. And I thought, man, I think I can trust God to head in this direction. 
Uh, I just needed to go off probation. So I went to my probation officer. Well, actually I enrolled at the school and I spoke to their faculty. And when they heard I was on such intensive probation, they were like, <laughs> we'd love for you to come, but I'm not really sure this is the best timing. You enrolled so in a new tribe school. Exactly. So yeah. I contacted them and I spoke to one of their guys there. Todd Dustin is a good friend of mine now. Um, Cause we worked there for a while. Uh, but he was just like, man, we would love to see you come. However, let's just, let's just trust God with some time to get off probation and we'll, we'll talk about it then because it's going to be hard to come up here um, with all the money I was already paying for court costs and probation mm. and stuff. So then I went to my probation officer and I said, would you, do you think it would ever be possible for me to get off early? It's like, well, that's a complicated process. My supervisor is the only one who can appeal that. Uh, and you have to get it um, turned over by the same judge who sentenced you. Well, I talked to my other friend who I'd met at that Haven of Rest program. His name is uh, Bill. And he was just, he was a, a retired lawyer. And he was like, man, you should, you should, you should push this and see if it would get you off probation so you can go to school. You've met all the requirements. You finished this program. I still had two and a half years of probation lab. I was already enrolled at a technical college and was planning to go to the North Greenville University here that has a Christian branch and you know maybe take some Bible classes there. But I really wanted to do missions. I loved how Ethnos 360, it's where Bible and missions are one. I could study the Bible and it would also prepare me to head overseas. Um, and I had no idea what God had in store for me when I'd go there. But uh, my probation officer was a believer actually as well. And he said, you know what? And we had a conflict of interest. We couldn't be friends because of his position. So he just appealed to the uh, supervisor and the supervisor said, all right, I'll take it to the judge. And sure enough, the judge who sentenced me was the same judge in rotation. And he, he suspended my whole sentence. And mm. right after that, literally, uh, I think that was in July and August of 2011 or 2009, I went up to Michigan to the Bible Institute there. And that's for theologically, uh, everything started to change. So life was being changed in discipleship and God provided incredible men, but I was being discipled under a paradigm of theology that I actually don't adhere to agree to now. But when I went to the Bible school up there is when God started really weighing in on how I perceive my relationship with him, who he is, how he interacts with me, how to even actually interpret the Bible. So it was massive changes there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you're at the Bible Institute, and you're determined to go to missions. And um, I know, is that where you met uh, Martha, your wife? It is. Yep, she was coming on staff there. My uh, second semester, the end of my second semester, started my uh, started my third semester, um, and when she came on staff, I was like, "Well, can't believe she's still single." <laughs> and then. Uh, Asked her out. She said no to me the first time. Uh, and then uh, a month later, it was awkward walking down the hallways. And finally, I was like, look, can we just go out for coffee? And then we were going out for coffee to it was a neighboring uh, county. I was like, listen, we're driving this far for coffee. Might as well do dinner. So we, we had like a six hour <laughs> dinner together. And then the history yeah. after that was uh, we dated for a while and then got married. Been yeah. married for 10 years now and have three kids. Three, three children. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll talk about your ministry, but I just want to uh, look back a little bit. When you were in prison, your understand, excuse me, your understanding of the gospel was not that I had. Correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't hear you mention that you felt like you had to be a better person uh, in order to be saved, but you knew you were an enemy of God and at enmity with Him, as to be more scriptural, perhaps, or both terms, and yeah. that there's. There's nothing in you that could merit your salvation. Do you have that understanding from the start? 
I did. Yeah. The guy who, and I don't know where he lands theologically, but my recollection of what I was hearing was, and it was contrary. I was actually considering Islam at that point as well in jail. But one of the biggest things that got me is that everything else, everyone else around me was asking me to do certain things to get into paradise or heaven or however they were describing this afterlife. And then when I hear these two guys present it, what all I was hearing was I needed to believe someone had done something on my behalf and I needed to accept that. I couldn't fix my problem. There was someone who already has the answer and the solution to my problem. And it was in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, like God's solution for my problem isn't me getting better. It's me accepting his sacrifice, his provision through his son. And, and I remember hearing that and believing that, and that was it. Um, now, as time went on, it's interesting. The guys I started studying under, good guys who I still love, excellent, still have great friendships with now. A lot, majority of them support us, actually. We've mm. had great conversations over this. Uh, I came under a teaching, though, that I think it was not the same as what I heard. And if the other guys were in that camp, they at least were able to guard against presenting that. They weren't, mm -hmm. uh, to steal some of your language, uh, front-loading the gospel at that point. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't telling me I needed to change my life. However, as I started failing and I saw other people around me failing, I started noticing consistent language. I'd see people leave the program we were at, and then they'd be gone for a while, and they'd come back, and I'd talk with them. And I say to such and such, you know, man, what's going to be different this time? And I say, well, I'm truly saved this time. And I remember earlier on hearing like, hold on, what do you mean you're truly saved this time? Hmm. And he would say, well, because I'm, I'm sure this time, you know, I obviously wasn't saved then because I started doing drugs again. And I, I remember earlier on thinking to myself, why? What are you? What is? What is you having to? What do you? What does you doing drugs and making a bad choice for a few months here had to do with your salvation? Yeah. And and that was just confusing for me earlier on. And then as I started studying and I started taking Romans. Um, in one of the classes, the, the presenter was heavy on um, what I just began to hear, uh, what he was calling Lordship Salvation. As I started reading more, you know, hearing, you know, got my hands on the gospel according to Jesus with John MacArthur and other key uh, prominent Reformed uh, teachers and started studying and hearing and buying into. Um, actually, before I went to Bible school, I used to jokingly say that, you know, I was a not even a five-point Calvinist. I was a seven-point Calvinist, you know, yeah. uh, in Reformed theology. I, I was, in my mind, I felt like if God had predetermined unilaterally from the foundation of the world that I would get saved, then he must have done the same for the others, if that's my definition of sovereignty. Hmm. Um, and then, so, so I was under that system, but I remember struggling. I, I still remember one time reading um, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Mm-hmm. Now that I know that that book actually did a really good job on some of his other books can get quite interesting <laughs> yeah. uh, and weird yeah, when we start talking about the good book. Yeah. Yeah. That one's a great, that one's a great book and I'm reading through it. And I remember I'm, I'm, I came home from work. Here's a little TMI. I'm literally sitting in the restroom and almost at a point of tears, just wrestling with like, why is it that I keep failing? And I'm hearing these stories and I'm hearing that I should be, if I'm a Christian, I'd, I'd started heading in the direction of this point of one naturism, believing that we only have one nature and that honestly, all of this is just the off of a bad lifestyle. And as I'm being sanctified, it just gets bumped off officially. And then I, I move towards this more saintly lifestyle uh, and just, just totally confused and sitting there thinking, maybe I'm just not saved. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at my choices and I'm thinking, maybe I'm just not saved. And I'm reading Watchman Nee's book and I open up and I'm reading through and he uses the example of uh, the, the glass of tea. I don't remember who's sitting with on a train, the glass of tea. 
and the guy takes his sugar cube and drops it into the, uh, the, the little cup of tea. And he asked the guy to separate the tea from the sugar. And the guy was like, oh, come on, are you kidding me? You can't do that. It's, it's now one. And he says, that's exactly the way eternal security is. The moment you're in Christ, your choices afterwards can't change your position. You're in it. There's no separating us now. We have an eternal union together. Uh, and he, you know, went on to say it's, it, just, it would be as complicated, even more complicated, actually, when we know what Christ has done for us uh, to separate me from Christ as it would to separate the, the sugar now from the tea. Yeah. Uh, it's no longer just tea. It's wheat tea, which I love sweet tea. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do in the South there. That's right. <laughs> so by God's grace, you understood the gospel of grace from the beginning. Yep. But reading these other books got you confused. Very confused. And yet your life started to change because you're reading the books, not because you wanted to earn your salvation. Correct. And I'm, and I'm studying and reading and memorizing large portions of scripture at this point. And, and I believe there was growth taking place. I was still very immature. I was a relatively new believer. Um, and I just kept uh, struggling with what I was hearing. And it seemed incongruent with what I was seeing. Like often it, you know, I would hear certain things said. And when there were examples on the table, uh, you know, someone would talk about the goodness of God and the eternal friendship with we that we have with God when we're in his son. And then I would see them look at a certain life and they would say, well, obviously he's not saved because of dot, 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 dot. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, the guys are saying your salvation has zero to do with works. And yet we get in a conversation with someone who has a very clear understanding of the gospel and can articulate very well what they understand and believe, but they're struggling. And my friends would say he or she is unsaved. Yeah. And it would be chalked up to certain passages like Romans 11 or Ephesians 1 or 9 through 11, Ephesians 1, John 6, all these as paradoxes. And I was like, it sounds to me like an incongruency, like a contradiction and really was struggling. And when I went to Bible school, I sat down with one of my teachers. I was, I was going to leave the Bible school. Uh, Ethnos 360, their Bible training uh, is a free grace school where they promote a clear gospel. No strings attached, front end, back end. It's very, very clear distinction between justification and sanctification and the role and what God accomplished in justification and how he's enabling a life onto maturity and sanctification. And I sat down with one of my teachers and I was like, this is heresy. I'm listening to this. I even contacted my pastor back here in South Carolina. And I said, I'm going to leave this school. This is a terrible school. <laughs> you guys are bad. And I sat down with him and just tried to give him a rundown on how he was misunderstanding Ephesians. I'm trying to educate my teacher there. Um, and he just giggled and listened to me. And we had just finished up hermeneutics at that point. And he just said, encourage me to go back and study Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I kept saying, are you kidding me? I believe the gospel because God granted me faith. And I kept going on, I'm dead in my sins. That means I'm a corpse. And I'm using all the common language that I'd heard right. um, within the reform camp. And he just was like, well, let's study it. Would you give me the time to study? It? And as I started studying, I realized, I don't think contextually I had understood that passage well. And I, and, and, and finally came to a place that I don't actually think this passage is saying that at all. And then it sent me through a spiral of, well, what if Romans 9 through 11 isn't saying what I thought? What mm -hmm. if John six isn't saying what I thought, what if, and it just mm -hmm. sent me through years of studying to get me to the place now where, um, yeah, I don't hold to any points of Calvinism. <laughs> well, uh, and there's so many people who read those books and by prominent authors and speakers, and they buy into the system, but they don't take the time as you did to actually do the Bible study. And if they did, I think they would, 
may, maybe be surprised at uh, what the Bible is really teaching about those things. That's so exactly. you, you realize that Christians can sin and that doesn't mean they're not Christians. How, how does the grace impact you today when you're struggling with sin? I mean, cause you're, you're not perfect. You've, you've grown quite a bit. You've come quite a ways, but we all still fall short. We all still have our bad habits and ways. Uh, so how does grace help you to view yourself today? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And honestly, once uh, salvation was quite secure, no pun intended in the sense that there, this thing can't, it doesn't depend on me mm-hmm. on the front end, getting in or uh, maintaining eternal friendship with God. I started to understand uh, a clear difference. And honestly, it was growing in my understanding of first John relative mm-hmm. to what Dave Anderson, or even in your material, you guys have written talking about the difference between relationship and fellowship. And as I kept studying and failing, obviously, as a dad, I mean, come you come live with me, you'll see quite quite quickly that I'm not the perfect dad. I'm not. Hey, the I'm a dad. Husband. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, often, and I think honestly, even even though there's an author that I disagree with, but he made theologically, I disagree with most of the places that he lands. But he makes a really good statement in the sense that the more mature we're becoming, the more conscientious I am of my sin. Yeah. I think that's true. Often, I become more and more aware of the fact that I am not what I think I am. And yet I'm able to lean back on the fact that, you know what, praise God that the way I function, whether good or bad, doesn't change the way God sees me. He loves me and sees me positioned in his son. And I'm able to have confidence in that even when I'm failing. Um, so I think that's huge where as I move forward in life, it was no longer me skeptical when I am, was failing or am really not am now in a sense. I mean, I still fail, but my thoughts are never where they used to be. Uh, but earlier on the transition of realizing there is something happening. There is something I can say about my immaturity and that's it. It's immaturity. I'm a son within the family. I'm just living immaturely. Mm-hmm. It isn't that I haven't been provided for. I'm not begging God for new resources. He's given me everything I need. Quite literally, as Peter says, pertaining to life and godliness. I just need to grow in that and trust him to live that out in abiding relationship. Um, and even in discipleship, when I see others struggling to be able to go to, hold on, is there a clear, clear understanding of what the gospel is and what uh, the son of God has provided for this individual and have responded to that. Well, if there's consistent misconduct, now I'm able to chalk that up to, hold on, this is a conversation of maturity. And I think that's the point of James, right? The reality of maturity and yeah. where someone at in their walk with the Lord is not that you don't know him as your savior. It's that you don't know him in a consistent walk with them. That's going to sustain you through whatever struggle it is you're having. Uh, so for me, it gives increased confidence and honestly, um, excitement to keep, I think, uh, what was I reading the other day? I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, as you're reading through, uh, Timothy, uh, when Paul's sharing in essence, his testimony, and he talks about God's extraordinary patience towards him. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, man, that's exactly right. That's incredible. That's yeah, grace overflowing. Here we have a God who's incredibly patient and he can do that because he's positioned me in his son. He loves me. Mm. He has, uh, giving me all the resources I need to move forward. However, it's me learning to tap into those resources and a walk. That's the big thing, understanding that it's, it's a walk with the Lord Jesus at this point. It's a, it's a growth process. Mm-hmm. It started yeah. with salvation. Yeah. However, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be usable on this earth, uh, it's going to, it's going to take me moving forward. And that's where work does have its place yeah. in the context of usability and context of the, the ambassadorship that's been entrusted to us here on this earth. And I started realizing, okay, salvation has everything to do with the gospel. 
and Jesus has shed blood for us. Usability within the church age has everything to do with my, my desire, my honestly responsibility to respond to truth, to get into the word, to grow and to trust him with the truth uh, that I have. So massive, massive difference. Yeah. No baby can grow without exercising and eating and uh, the That's same right. is truth, baby Christian. And so you've come quite a long ways and uh, just to take a giant, a giant leap forward, because I know there's a lot more to your story about how you got where you are today, but today you are with, what was called New Tribes Missions, now called Ethnos uh-huh. 360. And you mm-hmm. and Martha and family are serving as missionaries. Can I say the country or rather not? No, you can Africa. say the country. It's fine. In, in Senegal, West Africa. Yeah. Okay. It's because some countries we don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Thankfully, Senegal, thankfully, West uh, Africa. Yep. And um, just briefly, how, how did you decide on that as a place of ministry? Yeah. So, so the place that I was working at in Jackson, Michigan, uh, at the Bible Institute, which after the name change became Ethnos 360 Bible Institute. Um, I loved it. I mean, the place where I first started to understand grace, it was growing in grace. Uh, I had the privilege to teach some courses there and still teach their uh, their uh, profits courses adjunctly for their online classes. Um, and the first thing you say to- is don't smoke it. Read it. Don't smoke and read it. You, that's right. You want to hear right. from God? Don't do it through smoking. Go ahead. Uh, I'm read sorry it. to interrupt you. <laughs> that's exactly right. Oh man. I, often when I'm speaking to Gideon's, I'll I'll tell that part. <laughs> like, what were you doing with it? And I say, Well, don't worry. I, I read it now. My intake is not through uh smoke, it's through by the uh, way, were you smoking you, when you rolled cigarettes in jail? Were I was wondering, is it tobacco or marijuana? It would be both, actually. You could get both. Be, okay. We could get both, yeah. Obviously, the marijuana we're getting in illegally, but it's amazing yeah. what those guys can get in. <laughs> so, so yeah, while we were at the Bible Institute, we started having kids. Uh, my wife and I were serving, loving what we were having the privilege to do. Our primary ministry role was discipleship. It used to be called the dean's department, but we changed it to the student life department because the deans generally carried the connotation of uh, discipline or trouble. Mm-hmm. But it was discipleship. Mm-hmm. What they were learning in class, we wanted to ensure that they were trusting God to see that um, in the outworkings of their daily choices. Um, but as we started having kids, we still wrestled with wanting to go overseas and serve. So once our kids were getting older, we thought, man, this may be a good transition point. Uh, and we started speaking with our leadership team about that. Um, the challenge though, was I had only went through the Bible Institute part and I hadn't been to the missionary training center in Missouri. Mm -hmm. So I was a, what they called an associate member uh, I hadn't finished all the training. So if we were to go overseas, then I would need to do that training, which we weren't opposed to. We thought, this is great. So we decided, landed on heading overseas, heading in that direction. And we went to the missionary training center. My wife got to redo, you know, often in Bible seminaries or Bible institutes or Bible colleges, they'll say, hey, do the best you can because you won't get to redo this. Well, my wife got to redo it. <laughs> right. um, so she went through it all with me again. And we did the two years in Missouri. And while we were there, we were wrestling with going to Mexico uh, or West Africa um, and through a sequence of events and just talking with different people, trusting God with the relationships he'd already provided and listening to the needs. We decided on West Africa and moved over there in February of 2019, spent two years learning French, uh, got to what our mission calls Capable High, uh, where we can start functioning um, with that language uh, about two years into our French uh, study and really just trusting God to learn how to live in that environment. And during that time, we were heading in, we were heading in a direction of working with a people group 
in the southeastern region of uh, Senegal. Mm-hmm. And our field leadership team approached us about working with um, the training. Uh, well, the, the attempt at getting a training, I wouldn't say center, but a training program off the ground for equipping West Africans using French. So using the French language to equip West Africans, not just Senegalese, because if we were technically working with the Senegalese, Wolof is a better language because that's the wider language of communication. But for all of West Africa, French is the wider language right. of communication. So we had said no twice and then third time said yes, <laughs> not because we didn't value or believe in it. We just kept, we we'd left training to, you know, training in a U.S. setting to equip missionaries to head overseas. And we wanted to go into a village. So to say yes to training again seemed hard. But then as we thought about it, we were like, man, if, if we could really catch traction and if there is good training and good training in the sense of it's, it's solid biblically and the gospel is very clear yeah. uh, and the methodology now is derived from a very clear understanding of the gospel, clear under uh, a consistent hermeneutic, these guys could be positioned quite well to make a massive impact in West African villages that are still unreached today. And even broad, broader than that, you know, would love to in the future, see some of our, West African brothers and sisters who go through the training and they may do church planning in Thailand yeah. or in South America. Uh, so that's what we're in now. We're hoping our goal is that October of 2023, we will officially launch some training. We have four courses that we've landed on as we're continuing to develop uh, the curriculum uh, and going to do that in French. So we're excited about it. Yeah, that's, that's a great, I think, expenditure of your time and talent to invest in people who already know the heart language and the culture. And That's right. if, you, if you can get them grounded theologically and biblically, um, they'll they'll be able to share that more effectively probably than you would. You could probably draw a big, exactly. big crowd, but they can they can communicate with their own people much more clearly. So That's right. I th- I've always had a high opinion of Ethnos 360. I was just at their uh, headquarters in Sanford and spoke to the staff and met the president. Oh, so nice. nice. Yeah, it was a very nice experience. Very nice people. And I've always had a high opinion of that taught at both schools in Jackson and uh, Waukesha. And I appreciate the stand that New Tribes has taken to keep the gospel clear. And mm-hmm. that's why we appreciate missionaries like you who are doing that. You you seem to have from the very beginning a passion, a desire to share the gospel in missions, which we, we loosely define as something overseas or uh, counter um yeah, cross-cultural, yeah. Cross-cultural, not counter-cultural. Cross-cultural, instead of not everything is missions. Um, right. But you've you've made a great sacrifice leaving your family, your country, your culture, uh, other sources of employment. And uh, I'm sure there might be people that want to ask you for some questions about what you're doing or maybe even how they could support you. So how would they get in touch with you, Brian? Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the the best options is uh, Ethnos360's website. Um, Anyone who goes on the Ethnos360's website uh, could just type in Brian, spelled with the Y, Connard, and immediately it'll pop up uh, our information, and that's a way that people could partner with us. Also, just sending me an email um, would be a great way. Um, I don't know if there's a way you're able to, to display as people I can listen do that. To we'll do that in our introductory remarks, but why don't you tell us what it is? Yep. So it's uh, it's Brian and it's Brian with the Y underscore Conard, C-O-N-A-R-D at NTM for New Tribes Mission, NTM.org. So okay. people email me. It'd be an easy way. I go through uh, my emails daily. 
Um, people could call me as well. Uh, anyone who wants to give me a, a phone call, that would be no problem. Text, uh, any social media platforms if people want to connect with us. Even if people are interested in just following us, we have a private Facebook page called Sojourners in the Desert. Right. If people cool. were to send us a, a message, a request to join that group, they could even say, hey, we heard your story on uh, the, the Grace uh, podcast and, and would love to stay connected. And we would accept them into the group. And we generally try to send out weekly updates uh, yeah. on that. And if they send us an email as well, we send out close to quarterly um, uh, newsletters. We could easily add them to our newsletter. So those would be ways to, to stay connected. Okay. Well, Brian, good. We'll put that information in the, the introductory remarks in our text so people can can have that. It's um, ethnos360.org or .com or both or either? Uh, .org. .org. Ethnos360.org. And then we'll give your email address there, too. And I hope there's uh, people will appreciate your, your ministry. It's so hard to find good missionaries, and then it's hard to get missionary support. I don't have to tell you that. But yeah. <laughs> as a pastor of a church, uh, there's so much going on locally and in the backyard of, big, of two big giant seminaries here in my area. Yeah, uh, It's just hard to get people to support missions. But, you know, what I always say is we want we don't want to send any missionary. We want to send those who have a clear gospel of grace because mm. the world is locked up mostly in legalism, some That's in right. extreme Calvinism. But either way, we want to have a gospel of grace. We want to be biblical. And, and that's the value of uh, what you and Martha are doing. So we, we really appreciate that. Um, just in closing, Brian, um, somebody who's got a Bible sitting on their shelf, um, they may not be thinking about smoking it, but they haven't done much with it. What would you suggest to them if, if they have questions about life and they're feeling guilty or under the burden of sin and their bad habits, they're hanging with the wrong crowd, they're going down the roads that you've been on? What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, I know it can sound um, cliche, but I'd say read it, pick it up, read it. I, from day one, once, I mean, I heard, as, as I said in my story, I heard the the gospel, got up the next morning, the Jehovah Witness guy told me to stop smoking it and read it. I started that that next morning and I haven't put it down yet. I believe it's the, if I want a friendship with God, it isn't asking God to speak to me. It's understanding how he's already spoken it's the written word that's going to bring us through um, literally layers of depth of relationship with them. So uh, the answers to our struggles, the and I've found this in my deepest struggles to my highest success, the answers are rooted in what God has said. So running to the word of God is massive. Secondly, I'd also say, man, find, trust God to find a church, a body of men who can come alongside or women who can come alongside and help within the process. I don't believe that God ever wanted me to shoulder my struggles alone. First and most important, I, he wants me to come to him, right? Uh, I should be running to the Lord Jesus right. uh, and bringing literally my, my difficulties before him because he's the only one, you know, right? It's the throne of grace, according to Hebrews. Uh, and he's there willing to listen. He wants me to share. He has answers, but he's also provided answers through his body. Uh, there is wise counsel where people can come alongside and share life with you. So I'd say read the read the book, but then go towards the people who have the book as well, who are also studying uh, to deepen in your friendship with the Lord Jesus. There's some good advice from someone who's been down the wrong roads, but uh, rescued by the Lord and all of his grace. So, Brian, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. I'm sure that there are people will, who will be listening who will 
really profit from it. Yes. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for listening today. And I'm sure that you were just as fascinated by Brian's story as I was. Um, I just love to hear stories and how God's grace can break through the darkness uh, and hopelessness of sin. I'm wondering what you think about his story. Maybe you could leave a comment and tell us what you think. Uh, And also, if you would like to hear something in the future on our podcast, maybe make a suggestion for us. Maybe even you have a story yourself that you could contact me, charlie at gracelife.org, and give me a little rundown on what your story is, and maybe we can have you on Grace Stories someday. Give us uh, a good review and some stars, and that'll help other people discover this podcast. So we're glad that you joined us and look for all the information on Brian in our opening uh, written text, and you can get in touch with him. And I hope you do give him some encouragement because they're going back to Senegal in in, uh, next month, in, in January, I believe. So anyway, we appreciate you joining us until all here. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.